Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and a very warm welcome back to another episode of Wellness with Liz Earle. And alas, this is the last and final episode of season five as we are taking a short break. But I am very delighted to be joined once again by Dr. Hannah Short, one of our previous podcast's most popular guests. And if you cast your mind back to season three, Hannah generously shared how she navigated her own hormonal health during her time at medical school. As a student, she suffered with endometriosis and as a result, embarked upon surgical menopause as a young woman. Her own hormonal health journey has since inspired the entire direction of her medical career. She is now a passionate advocate for women's health and an accredited specialist in the menopause. And today's topic, premenstrual syndrome, more commonly known as PMS. Welcome back, Hannah. Thank you. Nice to have you back on my sofa. (laughs) And I remember last time when we talked about very much about perimenopause and menopause, and we touched very briefly on PMS, mm. and we had such a response from that that I think it's really triggered today's podcast because we know that we have lots of younger listeners. We also have lots of women who are affected by PMS and various versions of for virtually all their life. Um, and of course, many of us are mothers of daughters going through PMS. So can we start with a kind of a definition? What is it? What are we talking about? So PMS, I suppose, encompasses a whole range of different kind of syndromes that happen kind of in the lead up to the menstrual period. Um, And PMS stands for, you know, premenstrual syndrome. Um, Actually, we try and use an umbrella term, which is more premenstrual disorders, because it it covers things like PMS, which I'll talk more about, premenstrual exacerbations. So that's when there's changes in symptoms of underlying disorders and then premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Um, so it's quite a complex area <laughs> yeah. um, and it's probably important to differentiate between the different things. OK, so is PMS then the sort of the the general catch all that, you know, you know, starting from young girls through to sort of, you know, young womanhood going, oh, I'm feeling a bit hormonal. I'm, you know, I've got my period coming. Is that the sort of the catch all for PMS? And then does it kind of scale up from there? I think it, it's tricky because you don't want to kind of like say pathologize or medicalize every woman or girl who has premenstrual symptoms. So I think there's a whole range of premenstrual symptoms that happen in the especially in the last two weeks before a period. So that's called the luteal phase, the menstrual cycle. Um, 
and and so naturally you know body your body changes and that can affect your physical health and and your mental health so what's going on inside us at that time for those two weeks so that's following ovulation um and at that point your estrogen said it's at the highest at that point in the cycle and then it drops off quite rapidly and at that stage then progesterone starts to rise which then falls again quite dramatically just when when the period starts um and this is going to go on in, in you know in all women um and um it, it's a normal kind of bodily function and it's that's what enables women to kind of reproduce and mm. and so we're naturally cyclical creatures um and so it is a normal part of being female so we're not medicalizing this not but we're med- just sort of having a greater understanding on how it affects us and what we can yeah. do to feel better when we feel a bit grim so yeah so it's, it's normal to have the changes i think sometimes the awareness is enough for, for women to think okay i feel slightly different at this point in the month but um for other women it really does become i suppose a medical issue because it really affects their quality of life if you look at the research on um pms or you know premenstrual symptoms and things like that um there's we think there's around 150 different premenstrual symptoms but that oh my ranges goodness, I, thought, <laughs> I thought the menopause was bad enough with about 45 but so, really, um, ranging um, from what sort of things well there's often the mood related ones so you can feeling a little bit anxious um low in mood irritable um feeling overwhelmed um exhaustion fatigue and, and then more you know more physical ones like tender breasts bloating um carbohydrate craving things like that that is a real thing is it the craving it for the carbs yeah. okay so, so we, we are justified in reaching for <laughs> For chocolate. Yeah. So that that Dark I mean that, that, that is a kind of that is that yeah that, that is a thing. Um, okay. So but they they can be felt to kind of a lesser or a greater extent. And, and what should we expect? And what is the norm? You know, what would you what, at what point would you say actually this is something that you need to get some help with? Well. Again, if you the research is quite sparse, but if you look at it, it depends on how somebody defines PMS, and so it can be anything from virtually nobody suffers it to almost every woman suffers it. But I think on average, it's probably around eighty percent of women will have noticeable premenstrual symptoms. But for most people, it's not going to affect their quality of life. They might just think, oh, "I feel a bit, you know, I feel a bit crabby today, or mm-hmm. my breasts are a little bit tender." But then they just kind of think, well, I'll be a bit kinder to myself today okay. or maybe, you know, that, or they know that they need to get a bit more sleep. And does that start from the very beginning? Does that start from teenage years and continue right the way through to menopause um, or does it kind I mean, of happen? I mean, it can flow? do. We're all, we're all kind of completely individual. But I suppose in, in the, in, you know, in puberty, I suppose like periods can be hugely erratic. And I suppose some of those symptoms might be more severe then. But then often if women's body settle down into a bit more of that cyclical regime, then then things can calm down. Um, I think it, it's difficult to say, to be honest, how many women ha- do have a problem. Some women won't talk about it because they fear that they're just going to be dismissed as a hysterical female, or yeah. uh, or that you know, you know, they yeah, don't... guys kind of roll their eyes at the ceiling when you talk about this stuff and go, oh, it's just hormonal. So you know, which is not helpful. No, is it? it's not. It doesn't encourage us to talk about it and to raise awareness of it. I mean, I think the, when when does it become a problem? I think it becomes a problem when it's affecting your quality of life and mm-hmm. having a very negative effect on your, you know, on your mental and your physical mm-hmm. health. Um, so what can we do if it's, if it's not so extreme that we're thinking we might need some kind of medical treatment? What are the lifestyle decisions that we can make that will ease that period of time? Um, so there are some guidelines um, on, on managing PMS. Um, so there's stuff produced by the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynaecology called the Green Top PMS Guidelines, which people can Google. The Green Top? Green Top PMS Guidelines. Okay, Green Top PMS Guidelines. And what kind of thing will that tell us? And it's similar to the to NAPS, which is the National Association of Premenstrual Syndrome, of which Nick Panay is the chairman. I know you've had Ah, yes, we love Nick. Yeah, we've got more coming up with him in the autumn. By the way, if you're listening to this and thinking, I'm never going to remember all this, don't worry, we will put everything on the website. 
right. So anything that we talk about here and help yeah. groups and websites will we'll list later on. So he's 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 devised the guidelines which are very similar to the green top ones, which but they're probably a bit more accessible, I suppose, in their format um, for, for for you know listeners and the general and the general public. So it is things like you know not not drinking too much alcohol, um, you know having a healthy balanced diet with not too much processed foods or you know is not it all too the much boring, sugar. Same old it's stuff, the same though, old lifestyle stuff. You know okay. um, anything new? Are there any sort of supplements or vitamins or so, so, nutrients so, that help? B vitamin B six we think can be helpful potentially, and vitamin D. Um, Making sure you've got a folate rich diet, so leafy greens and complex carbohydrates. Um, you know things like oats and things like that. Mm-hmm. Magnesium rich food right um what about iron because we're obviously losing iron through blood loss um not there's don't think there's any evidence for iron in terms of actually pms or premenstrual syndrome just Um, afterwards you might need it yeah so energy so sometimes iron. yeah if if you're having a heavy blood loss then iron can sometimes help with that but not not really for pms i've read that chromium can help with sugar cravings and it might well do but it's not it's not in the guidelines so far (laughs) i haven't actually actually (laughs) seen the research on that but certainly things that are medically recognized are like the magnesium the b6 yes things like making sure folate rich foods folate rich foods um all of that stuff can kind of help and there is something saying certain calcium supplements but we have to be a bit cautious with calcium supplements they should only really be taken with vitamin d but -hmm. a lot of people need to take vitamin d because we generally don't have enough and you know we don't and enough. all of us are now being told to take vitamin yeah. D, is that right? So that's something that should be a standard anyway. I think so, yeah. So I think because we live in the Northern Hemisphere, we don't have enough sun. Even if we go out in sun, we put on sun factor. And um, it's essentially, it's not really a vitamin, it's a hormone. And yeah, we now... that's fascinating, isn't it? That it yeah. is, we've just written about it in the current issue of um, There's Our Wellbeing this summer, about all about vitamin D. And it's very interesting, that balance, because people worry about sun exposure because they're thinking about sun damage and skin cancer and skin ageing. But actually, we synthesise so much of that through our skin. Definitely. So it's good to get outside for 20 minutes in, in the summer with exposed. It can't just be your face. It has to be your arms and at least your arms. Yeah. or your. You know, well, I would actually legs. do it the other way around. I would cover up my face. Yeah. So I'm not getting yeah, the ageing rays. Yeah, cover your face. face and neck and the yeah. backs of my hands. But then I'd actually, you know, get brown arms. So it or... needs to be for 20 minutes. And yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah so it is to be honest it is the same old lifestyle stuff having kind of low gi kind of high fiber foods Mm, um, so the glycemic index so low sugars Mm -hmm. high fats can that help Um, not actually some people say treat with low fat i but for i think Mm. it i think it depends on the kind of fat so things Mm -hmm. like nuts and seeds are particularly healthy yeah so i wouldn't go like binging on loads of cheese or something but yeah avocado those kind of healthy healthy fats fats. Um, olive oil so yeah but just not going crazy with the fats but definitely i think for good hormonal balance you do need some fats in your diet so and what about the water retention what's causing that because that is such an issue isn't it for for bloating and the tightening of waistbands and things yeah what um, can we do i know you have to drink more water to get rid of water don't you it's a weird yeah. thing <laughs> so it's no, exactly so staying hydrated not having too much um in terms of the processed foods which are high in salt and things like that because that can kind of make it making sure you exercise mm-hmm. again fiber, even if you don't feel like it, it that's the issue you're not going to feel like i think necessarily going out and... that i think even like gentle walks and stuff can, mm-hmm. can be beneficial as well i mean if it but if it's to the point that you're not able to exercise because your pms is so bad then maybe yeah. that's when it becomes an issue yeah sure. i mean there are some kind of over-the-counter herbal treatments there are some 
some some slight evidence for that. But mm-hmm. I think like what? What's the um, answer? Perhaps. So there's helpful. Agnes Castus, mm-hmm. um, which which has been those studies say that that can be beneficial. Yeah. Not entirely sure how it works, but it, there. It, the only problem is we don't have um, a supplement that's the same strength as the stuff that was done in the trials. Right. Okay. But you can buy it from I don't know from places like Holland and Barrett or yeah. Boots. They've they have their own formulations right. and. They can be worth trying. For some mm-hmm. people, that makes a difference. Yeah. St. John's wort, but you have to be careful if you're anything like antidepressants or the contraceptive pill because it's not going to work well with them. So, oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. And now you talk about the contraceptive pill. Obviously, this whole process is being regulated by hormones. Where does that come into play? Because I remember as a teenager having you know, crippling period pain and being prescribed the pill mm-hmm. to help with that. So where does that fit into this whole jigsaw of PMS? So it effectively, I suppose, switches off the cycle because it suppresses the ovarian function. And so you're, you're getting, although, the, you know, you have a period, it's actually a withdrawal bleed. So it's not um, it's not a true period. So if you're trying to control the underlying cycle, so you have less of this up and down thing that you, you see in a natural thing. If you're not having ovulation, you're not going to have the big upswing of the estrogen and then the fall off. Um, but... Of course, some people still struggle because when you withdraw the hormones, when you have that pill-free week or whatever, some symptoms mm. can come back if you're particularly sensitive to it. But you can do the back-to-back thing with the pill now. So That's interesting, isn't it? And this is a relatively new piece of guidance, isn't it, mm. that the pill can be taken, and some people are even saying it should be taken continuously yeah. without a break. Well, I think there's there's a lot of medical reasons that that can be useful. So again, with, with very heavy, painful periods, um, endometriosis for for. for PMS or um, some 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 people with the PMDD that can be really helpful. Really, as just well. take it. So, do we need as women to have a period? Do we need that week of bleeding? No, there's 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 no medical reason to have it. And I think really? most of the time in the past, women would have spent their time, you know, they must have spent the last last you know majority of their time probably pregnant or breastfeeding and not so actually having a bleeding anyway. So no, it was a. I, I don't know. You hear various rumours saying it, it was the Catholic Church saying this. You know, we must make it seem as though replicating. I heard that. Like I that. heard that when when the pill was getting licensed back in the early sixties or whenever to make it seem more natural. Yeah. That and and to hopefully get it accepted by the by the Vatican. They made this week where it would create a kind of artificial bleed so that it would seem like a natural cycle. Yeah, I'm not and sure how the, true the it Catholic is. Catholic Church I, threw it out. Well, I'm going to do some research <laughs> on that. I, mean, I think. This whole area of, of kind of contraception and the contraceptive pill is so interesting because it's something that does dominate so many women's lives and for so many decades. Definitely. So the contraceptive pill is something that you use as a tool, as a doctor for PMS, is it? Yeah, certainly, for especially for the multiple, and especially if a woman wants contraception, then it seems, you know, it seems sure. to make sense. Um, I mean, there's particular types of pills that can be more beneficial than others. I was going to ask you because there are so many different types, aren't there, a contraceptive pill? What, yeah. what would you look for? Um, it depends. So if you're in you know, general practice, for example, you generally have guidelines and you start women on particular types of pill, which I because that's what's in the formulary and there's various reasons why you'd start them on that. Um, unfortunately, the, 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 the most common one isn't the one that you tend to use with, with the women with the more severe PMS. Um, but it's worth trying the standard one because for some women that's just brilliant. And, it, and what changes them? Is it about the dose of the hormone or the, it's or the variation the, of estrogen to progesterone? It's the type of progesterone that's in the pill. So there's progesterone, um, the progesterone the is often the drospirinone is the one. There's, there's a pill called Yaz or Yasmin that's been over here in the UK and stuff that, that, that's, that can be quite helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, 
um, I think it might have changed its name actually recently, but um, mm. it's it's that's the progestogen that's in the pill really that can be quite helpful. But often women don't get to try that until they've been through two or three other types. Right. So and is it the progesterone that's really the helpful bit here in being regulated more so than the oestrogen? No, it's just that some women tend to have more of a negative reaction to the progestogen that's in the pill rather than... Um, so it's the oestrogen often that can help with some of the symptoms. But if you give them a particular form of progestogen, then some women will react negatively to that. Mm -hmm. So some women with severe types of PMS or PMDD have intolerance to progesterone full stop. But, but Or maybe particularly sensitive to certain types of progesterone. And that was your case, I remember, when we talked yeah. about this before. So you couldn't get relief from, from no, unfortunately from not. So. Now you've talked here, and you know you're not. If, if if you're listening, you're thinking, why is she saying progesterone and progestogen? And these are different things, aren't they? And yeah. the progestogen is the synthetic. So progestogen, form, is that yes. Right? I mean, yes, it's a synthetic form of progesterone, or that well, that, that that is in the contraceptive pill. So it acts on the progesterone receptor, but it's not chemically identical to progesterone. So why don't they use like an HRT molecularly identical, like the Utrechtstan um, or the Micronized? I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, That's it might, interesting, it might, it isn't might it? be coming. Um, but again, oh, as I you wonder. know, with HRT. Um, we've only there's you can only get the utrogestan kind of separately, and it's it's the mm. synthetic progestogens that are in most of the tablet forms of yeah, HRT. It's interesting, isn't it? And, and that whole kind of development. And I think what always fascinates me, just touching on HRT here, is that many women are so um, afraid and skeptical of of taking HRT, and yet for decades they may well have taken a synthetic form yeah. of higher levels of hormones in in the contraceptive pill, and that doesn't seem to to phase them as much. No. <laughs> no, which is a bit mad, isn't, isn't it? it? I know, but putting the balance right. So PMS, scaling that up then to PMDD, mm -hmm. what is that standing for and how is that different? So PMDD stands for premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Um, and that, I suppose, is a very severe form of, of PMS. But, but some women... Um, don't like to, to, to say it's like PMS because they feel that it belittles it because people think of PMS and just wanting more chocolate and feeling a bit grumpy. Right. And um, PMDD is, I suppose, a whole other ball game, really. And how um, do you know whether you've got it? Is it, is it a fairly obvious thing? It, it can be quite difficult because it can also be confused with something called PME, which is premenstrual exacerbation. So that's when there's premenstrual exacerbation of an underlying disorder, say when you may already have a depression disorder or anxiety, but it can also apply to physical. Okay, um, so PME would mm -hmm. be if you you are have depression. Yeah. And, and it things gets worse. It get, gets worse in the luteal phase at the I time see. after yes, the time after ovulation. Whereas PMDD in itself is its own diagnosis. It is its own diagnosis. Right. Um and it's it's becoming more widely recognised, but it's been dismissed for kind of years or or not really recognised and talked about. We've never you know we don't learn about this in medical school. Maybe things are changing Do you but not? but it's yeah. I mean but I don't think PMS was touched upon to be honest. I mean if menopause wasn't then PMS really wasn't touched upon. Gosh. Um so PMDD um, is it's thought to affect between 2 and 10% of women. Again, we need more research because it's yeah. quite scant. Um, and the, it's, the, the symptoms can be really debilitating and they tend to be more kind of focused on the mental, psychological and emotional symptoms. So you can get severe physical symptoms too but it's it's the emotional psychological mental ones that cause the most distress mm. and 15 percent of sufferers will attempt to take their own life that's why it's <gasps> Hannah that's quite, shocking yeah that's why it's a big um, you know it's, it's an important that's issue massive. and what sort of age group is most affected by that 
It can affect any age group. So I've seen teenagers who have had it when they've been so debilitated, when, really? when, you know, in, in that at that point in their cycle that they are unable to go to school or, or you know, mm. or, or engage socially. I suppose it tends to emerge generally a little bit later or maybe people feel that they've always had a bit of PMS all their life and suddenly things get worse and we don't really know why that is. I suppose it's like mm. everything. There may be genetic factors and then something environmental, you know, whether it's a, I say it could be an emotional stress or mm-hmm. other illness or something like that can trigger it or following childbirth or right. so some people will sometimes say they or they might have been on a contraceptive pill and come off it and that might trigger it but I don't want to scare people by saying that so we don't mm-hmm. really know there is research from the National Institute of Health that said those there, there seems to be some genetic factors here um and so it's not a hormonal imbalance it's an abnormal response to normal hormone changes and that we see this at the cellular level so is that something that we're born with or something that develops later um again i think the research is just really scarce at the Mm. moment i think it's probably like most things that have genetic underpinnings so the genes will kind of um load the gun and then the environment or situations will kind of talk about epigenics yeah yeah epigenetics which is fascinating so i think it's difficult to know why some people would maybe develop or show signs of you know pmdd in their teenage years whereas others wouldn't be affected till their perimenopausal Mm. years i think this is where it's difficult to say how many women and girls were affected because things can morph into other things sure sure and just to clarify that when we mentioned the word epigenetics this is such a fascinating area of new research because we are dealt the genes that were dealt it's like being dealt a deck of cards and that's the hand that you're given but how we interpret that as individuals Mm. that's that's then the epigenetics isn't it that's then interpreting your genes so they're not necessarily your destiny so i think you know which is encouraging it is encouraging i think it's things like you know so i see a lot of patients in general practice with type 2 diabetes and lots of say oh well my mum had it or my dad had it therefore i'm going to get it but it it's not that black and white and i think i suspect the same is you know with with hormonal things we do know from twin studies and family studies that Mm. there is a heritability with pmdd so you do see it in families Mm. um but again, families tend to have similar environments. If you and if there's been a big stress, maybe it will have affected sure. the whole family and things like that. So, we think there um, is well, it's thought there's there's alterations in some of the estrogen receptors, and there's mm-hmm. also an abnormal response to something called allopregnanolone, which is and what a, is that? It's a metabolite, <laughs> um, a okay. progesterone. So there's a trial going on um, in the UK and parts of Europe at the moment, um, looking at something that will block that that action. Um, but we we don't have any data at the moment. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Because what was fascinating for me, and I learned this really through my menopause and HRT research, is the fact that we have so many estrogen receptors in our brain. Mm -hmm. And that's why we can suffer from low mood and anxiety, which is misdiagnosed as depression, clinical depression, when actually it's a shortfall of estrogen. And I guess what you're saying is that it's not just a menopausal issue. No. It can happen at any time of, of... of womanhood, young yeah. womanhood onwards. Well, it's it's an acute sensitivity, really, to the to the effects of of hormonal change, which is just an inherent part of being female. So, and do do we track that through keeping a diary of our cycle? So, is that one way of how do you, as a GP, differentiate between clinical depression and PMDD? Well, the only way to really diagnose PMDD is to keep a prospective diary um, of, of cycles and to see when when you are feeling, you know, the, 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 that those awful symptoms. So, really, to be diagnosed with PMDD, it's, it needs to be quite clear that there's those two weeks following ovulation that you have those awful symptoms, and then once the period comes, you quite quickly start to feel better. Um, and so then, would you need to be off the contraceptive pill while you do this trial? Yeah, it's going to be quite hard to do it, I think, if you're on the contraceptive okay. pill. Um, but, um, I mean, I think the problem is with that. I mean, that's what we need to do to get that diagnosis, to make sure it's not something like PME. So if it's a PME, so it's a worsening of anxiety or depression in the in, in the luteal phase, um, you're never going to quite feel, you know, just not completely balanced, I suppose, if you're struggling with that at that point. But it will worsen at that point. But again, that's... That's different. There may be some similarities, but it's not PMDD, and, and the treatments will, you know, differ slightly because you mm-hmm. need to tackle the underlying kind of disorder that's getting mm-hmm. worse in the luteal phase. But yeah, you really need to track your cycle. So either with a paper diary, which you can get on the NAPS website, so I can give you the website, Great. or, we'll make or IAPMD, or mm-hmm. things like the Clue app. Um, Clue. Yeah. Or C L U C C L U E. Yeah. Or mm. there's me versus PMDD. That's an app as well. Okay. Great. So you can kind of track your symptoms that way. Mm. You need to do it for at least two cycles. Right. I think the problem comes that a lot of women who then seek help, especially if they come to a specialist clinic, have tried. They've kind of self-diagnosed and they're very aware they have these changes, but they may have developed an anxiety or depressive disorder on top partly right. as a result of those symptoms yeah. and then that's when it can become quite hard to differentiate yeah, but to unravel and how much you talk about specialist clinics but how much do gps know about this if you go to your your local gp you know having tracked your cycle what sort of response could you expect i think it, it probably varies from gp to gp we don't we're not it's not really covered in training but there are guidelines and there's okay. patient information leaflets so again is it like the menopause guidelines do nice have guidelines because you not, look them up there's not nice guidelines but they're they're the green top guidelines okay from the rcog and then so you could read up on that before you go in mm-hmm. so that you know what to expect and the kinds yeah. of treatment that you might want to help i mean most people i see in my specialist clinic i i their gps generally have 
have been able to give them some advice you know mm-hmm. obviously the like the lifestyle advice maybe offering some of the over-the-counter you know preparations they might want to try or given them different types of contraceptive pill but i and then i think it's there i suppose it a bit like it would be with hrt starting to feel then it's kind of outside their comfort zone and yeah um and i think that's when when women start to feel a little bit desperate and might seek further help so right. it's really interesting you know as, as the mother of two girls two you know growing girls one in her late teens and one in her late 20s just to be aware of this just mm. to be aware and you know, I mean, they've sort of joke in, you know, joke in the household that, you know, all the girls, you know, feel hormonal together and, yeah. and, and, and the kind of attention can be can be wrapped up a bit. But I think to be aware that it could develop into something really quite serious. I mean, that statistic about about female suicide is really quite shocking. I know it is, it is shocking. They are doing some good research, especially over in the States. So the University of Illinois in Chicago, there's quite a lot of stuff going on there. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of... Um, well, well, IAPMD.org, which is, you know, another okay. website to look at. That's that, that lots of their focus is on suicidality in, in females and a lot of it's around the PMDD population. Gosh. And um, um, what treatments do you use as a, as, a, as a specialist in this area for treating PMDD? What, what kind of tools do you have in your armoury? So there's different things. So once uh, most women who come to see me have, are aware of lifestyle approaches and, and that, so they will have tried that. We obviously you can talk about that because there's sometimes people aren't aware that things like alcohol can exacerbate things or, you know, loads of processed foods. But most women are are aware of that. Um, um, so it's it's you've kind of you've got two kind of camps. You can go down the SSRIs, the antidepressant route, and this is where it differs from the whole debate with with menopause, because there is evidence that it's very effective in up to sixty to seventy percent of women with PMDD, um, and that this is because uh, I, I don't know it works differently actually to how it works in clinical depression. So you can actually see um, improvement quite quickly if it's going to work. So, and you sometimes only need to take it for the luteal phase. So you might just take it for two weeks a month rather than all the time. Yeah. Um, we're not entirely sure why, but it, it does. It does seem there does seem to be some you know basis to you know there's some rationale for why that seems to be working. Mm. Um, and so that that's one thing. And I think it's important that women don't feel dismissed if that's offered because actually right. that there is a basis for that. And that it, is a valid treatment. Yeah. So sometimes that and that can just affect and ha- how your body utilizes serotonin and things like that because we think that serotonin um, is, uh, is a kind of dysregulated in women with PMDD as well. That's coming back to gut health. Yes, <laughs> so and producing all our serotonin in the gut. Yeah. I mean, should we be looking at focusing on our microbiome and eating our fermented foods? And yeah, our well, I talk, I talk about that with with people again and having a high fiber diet, loads of varieties of fruits and veggies and yeah. you know, beans and nuts and seeds and and I know you had Tim Spector's on. Recently. That's right. Yeah, yes. listen to that podcast. Yes. But again, I think it's it. also, yeah. I mean, that is just so important. Whatever. And is that genuinely making a difference? Because it's all very well for us to sit here and say, "Oh, and you know, don't have processed foods." And it seems that that's like kind of the old line that's trotted out for everything. Yeah. Is it is that a statistically valid statement? And and why would it be that processed foods are going to make something like this worse? I think the, th- the theory is if you're feed if you're eating a lot of heavily processed foods, then you're not going to be feeding the, the gut bacteria the correct kind of the, the, all sure. the stuff that they, they 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 will thrive on so basically we we feed um our, our gut and then our gut kind of tells us what we want to eat so you you kind of the, the healthier that you eat then you're more likely to eat, eat beneficial foods basically to yeah. for the you know for a healthy gut microbiome um so a lot of it is i suppose is is based on you know a high, you know it's 
it's just a kind of a theory, but there does seem to be some evidence that mm-hmm. that it can be beneficial. And we're seeing more and more evidence about inflammation and chronic disease and low mood. And there's no reason why that wouldn't apply necessarily to PMDD. Mm. Um, and do you see differences in your patients when you put them on a more of a whole food diet or low, you know, cutting out the processed foods? Um, Definitely. I mean, it's hard to know exactly how many people well, you're are treating them in lots of ways. So, yeah, so. and um, but I have had women who say that they've they have changed their diet, including far more plant based foods and, tr- and trying to cut down on processed foods or yeah. not having excessive amounts of meat and things like that. But they um, and some people report do report a difference. Mm. But I think if you're focusing on a whole food diet that's got a wide variety of plants, most people will feel better because it's a really yeah. nutrient dense. Um, yeah, cooking from scratch. Very few things out of a packet. Mm. Nothing I think your difficult- grandmother won't recognise. <laughs> the difficulty is when you're um, when you if you suffer with PMDD and you feel awful in the second half of your cycle, like it, yeah. can, it can be impossible to do the things you need to do to feel sure. well. And I think this is when maybe medical treatment is kind of necessary as well to bridge that gap. Yeah, a bit like with menopause. So yeah. sometimes HRT can be the, the catalyst for people feeling better and then they do feel able to kind of cook healthily or take up running or exactly do some yoga and that that so it all works together yeah but how talking about menopause there i mean how do we distinguish between pms pmdd and perimenopause which can happen so much earlier than full-blown menopause I mean, that, that can be quite hard. But again, it goes back to the tracking again and seeing exactly when, when these symptoms are happening, I think. But again, PMDD can complicate perimenopause. It can emerge for the first time there. Um, perimen- can it really? Yeah, oh, no, so, as if there wasn't enough going so, on. <laughs> um, you know, so I mean, I see women and, you know, they'll say, I've always had quite miserable PMS-type symptoms, but it's just taken a whole new level when they've got to perimenopause. So it can be quite hard in that sense. But again, it goes back to the kind of tracking, really. If you want... I suppose it depends on how badly you want that diagnosis because actually a lot of the treatment can be quite similar. So if you don't go down the SSRI route, um, it goes back to trying to suppress the cycle and give adequate oestrogen replacement to try and smooth over the ups and downs of the oestrogen. Mm. So oestrogen, um, high-dose oestrogen can be really beneficial for women. Um, Now, the high-dose oestrogen, are you getting that in the contraceptive pill anyway? Is that partly how it works? Yeah, so you can, I mean... So is is that a form of HRT in a way? Yeah, so you can can have that. And and women up to 50 can be on the, you know, can be on the combined oral contraceptive pill. So if a woman up to the age of 50 is on the combined oral contraceptive pill, she is essentially on HRT because she's replacing hormones that would be diminishing during her 40s? Yeah, I guess. I mean, people say, can it mask it? Well, I suppose you're not going to know if you're in menopause until you stop it. Until you stop. Which is, you're then going to withdraw the hormones. And then so and then of... you're going to go, hang on a minute, why yeah. do I feel so rubbish? <laughs> oh, I haven't got any oestrogen, that's yeah. why. So, so, yeah, so certainly that. But, I mean, again, that, that works in the same way it works really for, for, for menopause, I suppose. You're mm. kind of replacing hormones that are a bit all over the place. But I suppose in the form of... PMDD it's giving you a kind of stable a stability there right I think the issue comes if if you're somebody who's progesterone intolerant or doesn't it doesn't isn't suited to the progesterone that's in that particular pill mm-hmm. um, and then you would try say the estrogels you know the, the the transdermal gels and patches and maybe natural yeah. progesterone some women get on well with that and I have had some women who don't feel so well with 
the estrogen and actually it's the progesterone that makes a difference. Sure. So if you're somebody who has perhaps not been able to use the contraceptive pill Mm -hmm. and then you are coming up to perimenopause and feeling really rubbish, you shouldn't be frightened of that because there are versions. You could have the estrogen and then, as you say, have the natural form of progesterone. Yeah, definitely. Or the the marina coil as well. So that that can work quite well. Now that is a progestogen, isn't it? So that's the synthetic form. It is, but it's it's a different form to what's in the majority of the contraceptive pills and it works more at a local level because the dose is so tiny yeah. isn't it it's you know it's, it's it inside you it's that localized dose which i read somewhere actually that the amount of progestogen in the morena coil is the equivalent of one capsule yeah i mean it's a tiny so, i mean it's, it's tiny, tiny i mean you think that you're amount. taking a daily oral capsule but if you know if you have the morena coil it's that tiny tiny bit yeah no it's a tiny amount but i mean some women are still actually don't get on with that Even so that, yeah. and i think that's when there's unlikely to be an underlying genetic susceptibility mm-hmm. there but i think the key is everyone needs to be treated individually because yeah. the more i see that there's the, there's not one size fits all and sure. there's not one answer and i think I, what I've learned following my surgery, which was for PMDD as well as the endometriosis, and you had that at what age? Thirty-five. Yeah. I I think I I realised that I I think I naively thought, well, okay, my ovaries have gone, so let's, which is the this is the kind of the final last resort if 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 mm. all the other treatments don't work, and in my case, I I couldn't tolerate any form of progesterone. And what you do then is you have a GnRH analog, which is medication which switches off. Um, the ovarian cycle essentially and then that's to see if you're going to you know how you're going to be in menopause um so you you trial that to see if things are better and if so then you might go down the hysterectomy route oh i see so they can artificially switch off your hormones yeah. as if you'd had a hysterectomy mm-hmm. to give I mean, it's you, not to exactly give you, the same but yeah it's theory to give so you a taste of it really and to see whether that's going to help you yeah so that's what they do and it's not always successful because sometimes the cycle doesn't seem to want to be suppressed but generally it, it can work pretty well um, and that can give you a guide as to whether or not it would be the right route to go down. Mm. Um, but I think I thought, well, you take the ovaries out and then you give me oestrogen because I don't need the progesterone because my uterus has gone. Yeah. Um, and I'll be fine. But I have struggled since. But I'm a lot better really? than I was. But it, I think it's because you can't give yourself stability all the time because our body's a dynamic thing and our physiology changes. So do you find that you still get a cycle, even though you've had a hysterectomy, that you still sort of emotionally are getting some kind of roller coaster with the hormones? I don't get a cycle, um, although some women are reporting they still feel as though they're having a cycle in the first year following surgery for PMDD. But I, and I don't know if that's kind of like almost like learned behaviour in the brain. The brain's responding to it like when people have a limb removed. I don't know if it's akin to something like that. Mm. And it's going on in the absence of the ovaries being there. Um, so that is a phenomenon we do see. Um, but I I definitely have still have a hormone sensitivity. So if I have very high levels or very low levels or a dip, like I haven't absorbed some of my HRT at various points. And, you know, I can see that in blood tests. Mm-hmm. I think, well, OK, that's why I feel so rubbish or... You know, and that's when it can be really hard. And I've learned, uh, you know, over the years that lifestyle for me is really important because that can affect that can affect how well my hormones that are. That makes all the difference. So I, yeah. I like wine. It doesn't like me. I think I said this last time, but it yeah. does affect my hormone levels and I'll get a crash even if I have a glass of wine. Really? Like the next day I can feel it. So getting adequate sleep, all of this stuff's really important. Mm. Eating well. If I, if I don't eat well, then... You know, if I have, to, you know, I, I quite like cake, but if I have cake on a regular basis, it's not yeah. that good for me. So, <laughs> but I mean, it's just, it's, 
yeah, I mean, it, yeah it's I'm learning your body understanding but... your body becoming open to those sensitivities of, of monitoring yeah. I think the idea of diarising things is really helpful I th- and I think what women I mean I didn't really think about this before the surgery and it but, but it's really important to know you if you've had years and years of psychological torment because of your hormones or that's ultimately that's what happened you have to do quite a lot of psychological work post-surgery to unlearn that in a way because you're kind of primed to have certain responses and to if you if you feel anxious then your brain just wants to go down an old familiar route so we know that we can kind of there's neuroplasticity in the brain and that we can retrain things through thought and things like that if but you have to actually put work in because I, I I know a lot of women who've had surgery for this have had to do a lot of intensive psychological sort of relearning work. of yeah. how their body is now working and, and unlearning of, habits and patterns yeah. of behaviour. So I think it's it's kind of um, it's unfair really to, to to say to women. I'm not that anybody really does, but I don't think really people understand what they're going in for half the time, or that it isn't as straightforward as having ovaries out, having some ad back estrogen, and everything's fine. And that's fine. You, yeah. it, you have to think that this is something that's probably affected your life for many years mm-hmm. um, and you have to unlearn some negative ha- habits even though a lot of them are going to be unconscious um, yeah. and un- unconscious responses to certain emotions and situations they're so, still going to be there yeah just finally I've, I'm very interested in this whole area of women getting to the age of 50 who are then there's this is it kind of arbitrary I don't know just told right no more contraceptive pill mm-hmm. presumably because they think we don't need it mm-hmm. for contraception and then potentially going into a major hormone crash because mm. you suddenly then will be presumably quite oestrogen deficient. Do we need to be more aware of that when we go to our GPs age 50 and they say, oh, right, that's it, you don't need that anymore. And we're not offered any anything mm. else, any hormone replacement for that. Well, I, I yeah, I mean, I think women should be told that, you know, if you've been on something for several years, it's, you know, you are then withdrawing something that your receptors are used to. So you, even the most balanced people might could probably notice some some changes. Yeah. And especially if it's around, you know, the average age of menopause, then your estrogen levels are naturally going to have dwindled a little bit. So I I think it's only fair to say that. And But I think it's I think informing women is like the first part because not yeah. everybody's going to want to take other things. But otherwise, just mm. saying if you feel like you're having menopausal symptoms or whatever, we could talk about HRT. Yeah, which um, is just still carrying on with your oestrogen. Yeah. So it's not particularly different from the contraceptive No, pill. but it's a kind of a lower dose and a, diff- a different form. It's safer. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> Ironically. <yeah. laughs> so. <laughs> oh, Hannah, it's really great to have you back chatting through. I always learn so much when you're here. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank and you. I would really encourage, uh, if you haven't heard the earlier podcast with um, Dr. Hannah Short, when you do talk more about your own experiences. And I know in that one, Hannah, we talked about hysterectomy and endometriosis in particular, didn't we? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more information on there. And thank you. But that is sadly all we have time for today and for this series. But as we did say, you will find details of the resources and the links, all those amazing acronyms and websites that we've mentioned in today's show over on lizellwellbeing.com, where you can still sign up for the free newsletter for recipes, well-being, wisdom, behind-the-scene treats. Even when we are off air, you can still get it. Just head to the website, pop your name on the list, and hopefully that will ease the pain of not having this podcast in your ear for a short while. Now, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. This will ensure that you continue to get my mini-series, a little Friday five podcasts every week as well as episode one just as soon as series six starts next season 
And in the meantime, I would love it if you did have a spare moment to leave me a review as it really does help others find the show. I think that so much of what we talk about is so incredibly helpful and useful and it can often help people find the help they may well be needing. So until the next time we chat, go well. Bye-bye. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manis and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.